Welcome back to Series 3 of Mud Between Your Toes, Conversations with Pete Wood. In this series, I'm interviewing people from around the world, from all walks of life, and all with stories to share. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, my guest today has covered wars, international politics, and economics for Agence France Press, where he served as bureau chief for Afghanistan and then Cambodia. Luke Hunt has written for the Melbourne Age, the New York Times, the Times of London, The Economist, and writes a weekly column on Southeast Asia for The Diplomat. His broadcasts have appeared regularly on ABC Australia and on Voice of America, and he's here today to chat to me about his book, The Punji Trap, The Spy Who Didn't Love Us. So Luke Hunt, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. G'day, Pete. Thanks, mate. Um, so, lovely introduction. <laughs> Thanks. So, Luke, you're in lockdown in Cambodia at the moment. Um, yeah. Now, look, you've lived a very colourful life and covered some of the biggest conflicts in the last 30 odd years. So right. tell us, how did you actually get into journalism? Um, I think it was partly fed by the fear of mundanity. Well, basically, I got a job as a house painter, which I didn't want and I didn't like it and I didn't want to do it. Um, and I kind of vowed that that's it for me. I'm going back to university. And I always loved journalism. Uh, there, were, there were a couple of moments in my childhood where we rode skateboards and made the local papers, uh, things like that. And it kind of sparked my interest in newspapers. And um, I was always very good at uh, English comprehension where I was lousy at physics and maths, which is what a lot of kids are like. And I kind of drifted down that direction. And in the end, um, I went to the university and I applied as a mature, <clears throat> sorry, and I applied as a mature age student, as they called them then, and um, uh, I got in. I scored high marks and it was all well. And I was at the ripe old age of about 22, uh, having been told by one newspaper editor that I was already too old to enter the business. So, you know, it's all changed since then. And um, basically I never looked back. Uh, I did well I did well at university and I was editor of the university newspaper and we uh, broke a couple of stories and that uh, kind of perked up the interest of Australian Associated Press and uh, where I uh, was hired as a, uh, we call them cadets, but the Americans call them interns. And uh, it went from there. Well, and, and you were eventually sent to Kabul by AFP, and it was there during the 1997-1998 Taliban offensive that sure. you were captured and interrogated by the Taliban. Well, not, Tell us not, about that experience. Well, you yeah, know, I wasn't quite captured. Uh, what happened was uh, the snows had set in, which meant there were these pockets of fighting, and some of it quite fierce, right around the country. And they had, uh, the Taliban had soldiers trapped uh, up at Maiden Shah in the northwest, and they couldn't get food supplies into them. And they'd been in this situation before. It comes and goes with the, um, with the seasons. Anyway, I wrote a story uh, basically saying that. And Radio Tehran, uh, who were sort of sworn enemies of the Talibs, uh, they ran the story saying that um, according to our man in Kabul, and this had happened and that the Talibs uh, were trapped and that they should um, give themselves up and that we're going to come in and basically do you over. That really incensed them. So I was subsequently 
uh, charged with uh, espionage on pain of death. And I was told by Mutmain Mutawakal, who was then the information minister, that uh, if I didn't um, prove my innocence in a Sharia court, I would be uh, shot at the uh, Kabul football stadium on a Friday after prayers, which uh, wasn't really a thought that uh, <laughs> pleased me. Uh, we, kept, we actually kept that under wraps for a long time. Uh, it was easier to negotiate a way out. And I, I defended myself in the Sharia court. Uh, I was under house arrest. Every day I'd go to the court. And this went on for probably uh, four or five days, house arrest for a couple of weeks. And in the end, it was kind of weird. I, I, I stood up in the court and I defended myself with maps. Uh, they were prepared to let me go if I apologised and I refused to apologise because I didn't make the changes in the story. This was done by Radio Tehran. And um, I stood my ground and there was this kind of towards the end, I didn't quite know what was going on. Uh, there's a Sharia court, you've got maybe 30 or 40 men in beards and traditional shower kamish sitting around. And then they all just sort of like stood up and started to walk out. And I just said, well, what happened? <laughs> and, and this um, one of the talibs turned around and with perfect English, English, you know, a plum in his voice said, uh, you can go home now, you're free. Ah. <laughs> so it was a nerve wracking couple of weeks, but um, we got through it in the end. But yeah, it was, it was quite nasty. And uh, the, 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 the Talibs, like uh, all of these groups, they've got some, there are some people in there who are uh, kind of reasonable, but normally they're overshadowed by the big bullies. I mean, clearly it didn't put you off. And it was shortly after that you were posted back to Afghanistan to cover the US invasion and occupation of the country. And, and since then, I mean, really, you've made your speciality uh, as in counterterrorism. Yeah, has, that, has that sort of got you into trouble, Taliban aside? Yeah, no. Um, well, when I left AFP in 2008, I had a lot of ins in terms of counterterrorism from the sources that I'd made over the previous decade. And I decided to focus on that, which lasted pretty much until about 2012. Um, it, there, were the, there were moments... Um, I'll, I'll, I'll flip that a little bit. Um, first of all, the authorities knew who I was in Indonesia, Malaysia, Cambodia, Thailand, Philippines probably a little less so, but they knew they knew who I was and they liked me and they didn't want this problem either. Um, so the biggest the biggest issues actually were more like in Cairo. I was nearly taken on a Friday afternoon. That's one thing that really does scare me when you're surrounded by. Uh, five young men in a, a kind of uh, in a crowd coming out of a mosque and they encircle you and they're trying to bully me under a flyover and they're simply saying we're going to take you we're going to take you and whether you have money or not it won't matter and in the end I just kind of um, pushed pulled and bolted and got out of there but that that left that 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 left me shaking but by and large, most of the authorities, um, they know who you are and they're monitoring you, and particularly in places like, um, I mean, people thought I was mad to go to Borneo, uh, <clears throat> but Borneo was one of the most unreported areas when uh, counterterrorism was really a big issue in Southeast Asia. It was called, the, the, the security blokes called it um, 
the three T's, terror, uh, terrorist transit triangle, which basically meant all the groups that were linked to Gemma Islamia, JAT, um, Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, they used to traverse between Solo in the Philippines across to the northeast coast of Borneo, down a little bit and then back over into Indonesia. Was, that's where they were smuggling in um, the, all the components you need to make bombs. That's where they were meeting, that's where they were hiding out and then get a fast boat over to Holo and go up the swamps and hide out. And the one story I got out of there that I am particularly proud of and did scare me for quite some time, eh, maybe not scared, but makes you wary, was Umar Patek, who um, everyone thought he was dead for five years. And he was one of the Bali bombers and he trained yeah. Al-Qaeda in uh, Afghanistan as early as 1994. He was there four or five years before I was training for what was to happen in Bali. And um, I had word that he was still alive. I had word that he was moving. And I wrote the story, but I also traded the information with the authorities. And it was like, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. He's dead, he's dead, he's dead kind of thing. Anyway, about a month, two months later, they arrested him in uh, Pakistan. In fact, they arrested him uh, at a post office which was controlled by Osama bin Laden, uh, by his, sorry, by bin Laden's family. And they arrested him within about a, um, about a oh, 10, 15 minute walk from where bin Laden was finally uh, killed by the Navy SEALs. And uh, it, that's always made me wonder. Uh, they brought Umar Patek back and he's now in jail. And he, he was sentenced to 20 years, I think in 2012. But I, I did meet a Navy SEAL who was involved with the bin Laden operations once. And, I just wanted to ask him, you know, was Umar Patek t turning up in Pakistan deliberately tied to Osama bin Laden and bin Laden was killed within weeks of Patek being arrested. And you know, he just looked at me and he smiled and he said, you know, that's not in my pay grade. I can't comment. <laughs> I'd love to know. I'd, uh, that's kind of one one little morsel that I'd really like to know the answer to. And you never will, I should imagine. Probably not, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, we can't talk about all the stories that you've covered in Asia. Uh, maybe we can do that another time. But what I do want to talk about is your mm -hmm. book, The Punji Trap. Right. Can you tell us what is a Punji Trap and what's the book all about? Well, actually, we've been talking about terrorism. Um, terrorism is uh, it's basically a poor man's warfare. Uh, people get very confused over the definitions. You see terrorism being applied to the Myanmar military today, which is it's not correct. But terrorism is cheap warfare. And the Vietnamese, uh, the Viet Cong in particular, were, were very good at it uh, during the Vietnam War. And a punji trap is basically uh, poor man's weaponry. You dig a hole, you fill it with spikes, you paste it with feces or whatever you can get a hold of over the top of it, and you cover it with leaves. You put them in tracks. You put them at the side of the tracks, and you might send an RPG into a column. They'll disperse and roll off the sides, knowing, and you would know those traps are there, and they'll roll into them. And they're extremely painful, and they're not designed to kill immediately. The idea is that if you've got a platoon, say, or a squad, say, of six men, 
and someone falls into a trap or gets a spike through their boot. Uh, it's extremely painful and there'll be a lot of crying, there'll be a lot of screaming, and it'll take four people to carry you out of the jungle. And in the entire time you're being carried out, the enemy knows where you are. And of course, you're and going to get septicemia as well. That's right. Feces. That's exactly right. That's exactly it. And it's a very, it's a poor man's weapon, uh, but it's very effective. And it's a type of thing, you know, it's a bit like journalism, as you know, Pete, that's often the things that get you into trouble, uh, often what's most dangerous is really what you don't see. You know, it, it's not like a Hollywood movie. It's not... Um, it's not a game, it's very real. And it's what you don't see that often comes in from left field and knocks you for a six. So, so what's the book all about then, Luke? Well, it's, a, it's essentially about Farm Suan. And Arn was a, um, he was a charming fellow, I knew him quite well. But he um, was a young man in World War II when he joined up with the communists unbeknown to anyone until really confirmation came out in the late 90s, early 2000s, as people started piecing his life together. And um, I had heard about him through a Vietnamese friend of mine in uh, Australia, and he organised it for me to go up and interview him. Now, he was the Viet Cong's highest ranked spy. He retired a Brigadier General. He was a Colonel. The entire time, no one in the Western press corps knew this because, uh, well, it was obviously a secret, but in his other life, Arne had traveled to America. He had studied journalism. He had worked on the Sacramento Bee. He came back to Saigon. He got a job uh, with Vietnam Press, which in those days was uh, kind of affiliated with AFP in some way. So more the Francophile kind of thing. Uh, anyway, but from there, his career as a journalist blossomed because he always knew what was going on because the Viet Cong were telling him. And he was, um, he, for, for the journalists that he worked for, and this included Time magazine for many years, Reuters, where he went to in the early 1960s, uh, he often had the inside breaks on uh, battles, uh, assassination plots, uh, coup attempts and he was he, as, as a fixer and a journalist he was just he was gold um, but at, at the same time he was sending all the <clears throat> sorry at the same time he was sending as much information as he could to Hanoi and he was directly involved with the planning of the Tet Offensive in uh, 1968 which turned the tide of public opinion against the Americans, sorry, against the Vietnamese in America. Uh, and basically his argument always was that you can't beat the Americans when it comes down to guns and tanks and boots on ground, but you can beat them politically. And by turning the tide of the Vietnam War in terms of public opinion against the politicians in America, he forced, he helped force the withdrawal. I mean, it's a bit much to say he did all that, but oh, he was, he was right in there at the core. And it was for that reason that the Americans pulled out and essentially abandoned South Vietnam, which um, uh, the North would eventually invade in 1975 and take over. And there's a lot of myths about 
this kind of thing. There's a lot of misconceptions uh, in the minds of the public about what happened and how it happened. And sometimes it drives me a little crazy, but um, it, it is what it is. But yeah, no, it's fascinating chat. And yes, I, I, he, he was about as close as you can get to the perfect spy uh, in, in terms of, if you, if you look at the great spies of the 20th century, he had a cause, he, had, he did things, he had an impact and he had a lasting legacy, i.e. Vietnam is now North and South are one country and uh, he had a lot to do with that. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating story, but did Reuters or AP or whoever he worked for ever question where he was getting his information from? Um, or did they turn a blind eye? It, it, depends on, it depends on who you talk to. Um, you know, it, it depends on who the journalists were and, uh, uh, and who their bosses were and the individuals within a media organisation. Um, Time didn't want to know. You know, it was said that um, when they found out he was a spy that... Uh, all the senior editors in uh, New York had a heart attack <laughs> together. <laughs> but Reuters, on the other hand, uh, bear in mind that he was working from the late 60s to the end of the war with Time magazine. In the 60s, uh, there were quite a few people who suspected him of being a, a spy. In fact, he was sacked by Reuters because his copy read too much like Radio Hanoi. And uh, there was one journalist, in, uh, a New Zealander, who uh, picked up on that and Yes, there were people who uh, had their suspicions. Uh, there are other Vietnamese journalists who certainly had their suspicions or claimed to have known, and anybody can claim to have known after the fact. But um, it, it, it's kind of a bit odd that Reuters was aware of this and they did act. Uh, he went to Time and Time magazine, they just didn't want to know. And in fact, it was his work with Time magazine where the great, the great lie were, came out of 1968 when um, the Americans believed they were losing the war and they weren't. And in fact, the communists came out in the, uh, about 1985 or 86 and th they said, you know, look, following the Tet Offensive, we were decimated. You know, they, they were really on the back foot. If the Americans had carried through an Operation Phoenix, which was going on at the time, it was an assassination program of all the Viet Cong had been highly, highly effective. So what they needed to do was convince the world that the Viet Cong were in a much stronger position than what they actually were, particularly when they're having peace talks going on. So they went to the negotiation tables um, with a strong military hand and it was all nonsense. But um, uh, several editors who worked with who did work with Farm Salon told me that he just made up stories and they published them. And that included uh, like, you know, let's meet tonight under the cover of darkness and then we'll wander out to Cholon and they'd go out and walk down these creepy little alleyways and come out in a coffee shop and then they'd introduce you to someone who is um, uh, a senior Viet Cong official when really you could have been a local taxi driver. And they just kind of uh, created this sort of propaganda machine to convince the world that the Americans were in a losing position when in fact they were not. And um, that's one thing that the, the communists are actually uh, quite serious about getting their history correct on all this, kind of, anyway.
Well, it's a fascinating book, and it's amazing how a war that took place 40, 50 years ago is still um, it still garners so much interest. Um, it's called the oh, Punji. It's called the Punji Trap. It's still available on Amazon. I expect it's still in many bookstores. Um, yes, COVID hasn't helped us. So I've, got, I've got a couple of hundred copies left here. That was uh, <laughs> and, uh, they ain't going anywhere at the moment. <laughs> and uh, and you know, very quickly, I mean, in your opinion, was he the perfect spy? Yeah, I think he was. Um, if you look at uh, the likes of, say, Kim Philby and uh, the, the other great spies, say, of the 20th century. Uh, I think Arne stands up with all of them. And uh, the fact that he was never caught with the likes of Philby and that they were. Um, Arne really, he wanted to take all his secrets to his grave. But as he got older, and he didn't like communism. He didn't really know what it was when he joined the movement. They only fully had an they only had a full appreciation for it after '75, and what it actually meant. I mean, they haven't had free press in uh, Hanoi since what '54, and they haven't had it in South Vietnam since '75. And unlike all that stuff. And when it was all taken away, he was like, he didn't like it at all. And it was at that point that he started to reveal bit by bit to certain people what he had actually done, because he, he actually tried to defect on three occasions. He tried to organise that and they all failed. But he was never really caught and he got away with it. And the cause and effect of his work has left a, a lasting impact on history. And as you said, you know, people still have to ha people still have a deep fascination for uh, the Indochina wars and what happened in Vietnam. Yeah, um, look, uh, we're running out of time, but uh, despite spending your life in the firing yeah. line, I'm told you recently nearly died from a virus. Oh God, that was pretty serious. <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, no, I, what I'm told by the doctors because it happened as COVID was out. It was uh, just starting to get a move on. And um, basically I contracted salmonella and uh, I wound up in hospital and I had uh, double pneumonia, both lungs and a host of diseases, which I'd have to go back and learn how to pronounce, but basically uh, a couple of intestines burst and I uh, went into septic shock twice. And uh, the doctors brought me back according to one doctor, he said, I died twice on, uh, on the, um, yeah, and I died twice and I can remember it. It was quite an experience, but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm fine now. Uh, but um, yeah, that was, uh, that was three months recovery, six weeks in hospital, one week in an ICU and um, $60,000 later, which the insurance company covered <laughs> that bloody hell. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're still around thanks mate. That, uh, it was it was seriously nasty and um uh i had no fear of the afterlife i had no fear of death because of it i can tell you <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't that bad in the experience it was quite pleasant in some ways but i do remember <laughs> it wow and what are you working on right, right now uh, right now, I'm a bit like other journalists who are caught in lockdown. Um, I'm writing more about the region. So Myanmar's occupying quite a 
good deal of my time. Uh, there's certainly enough stories coming out of Cambodia, particularly with the latest spikes in uh, COVID to keep us busy. And I'm doing the odd security report for uh, private clients, which uh, keeps things moving along nicely. Uh, there's a bit, bit more television production, which I'm doing for Voice of America. And uh, the, the, problem, the problem is with working in a COVID environment is that anything to do which has nothing to do with COVID is uh, kind of uh, hits people from left field. It's like nobody's interested in anything. It's got to be a big story, yeah. much bigger than normal to get people's attentions unless it's got COVID involved. And that's where it's a bit trickier at the moment to, um, uh, to, get, to get copy to run. Mm. Well, listen, Luke Hunt, we're actually out of time, buddy. Thank you so much for joining me from Phnom Penh um, on Conversations with Pete Wood. Thanks, Pete. Always good to talk to you, mate. Fantastic. Cheerio. Cheers, mate. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.